Um, yeah, we were made to worship Jesus. We were made to worship God. And when we don't worship God, it's not that we stop worshiping. It's just we find something else to worship. We're, we're made to worship. And so we will worship something or someone. And we were made to worship God. And he is infinitely worthy of our worship. And we worship by faith. I love the song we sang earlier, even though, even when I see it or don't see it, you're working. When I don't feel it, you're working. We don't live by our sight or by our feelings. We live by faith. We're in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the faith chapter. It's the chapter that describes all these men and women who have gone before us, and well, those that it was originally written to had gone before them, and they were faithful to the end. It's, some have called it the honor roll of the faithful. It's the honor roll of those who walked with God in faith. To say that faith is important is, for the Christian is a massive understatement. Faith is absolutely imperative. Verse six kind of rattles our cages a little when it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is what pleases God. And without faith, we cannot please God. Without faith, we can't please him. It's impossible. It is an impossibility. Romans chapter 14, verse 23 in the context, Paul's talking about um, living according to our conscience and not causing others to stumble. And he says this amazing thing. He says, without faith, or excuse me, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So faith, a real and living faith, is what must fuel, doesn't just get us to heaven, it must fuel our entire lives, all that we do. Obedience is to flow from faith. Our entire life is to flow from faith, and this is what pleases God. So the necessary ingredient in our lives that we cannot do without is faith. There's no such thing as an unbelieving believer, Christian. I mean, don't get me wrong. We struggle. We, we want more faith. We want greater faith. We want God to help us with our faith. But the Christian is someone who believes, someone who has faith. And so the question is, that the ever important question is, is your life marked by faith? Do you truly believe? Think about how this works in prayer. We can either pray with faith or without faith, and it makes a huge difference if we pray with faith or without faith. A guy named J.C. Ryle, he was, a, he was an Anglican bishop, or a bishop with the Church of England in the 19th century, and he said this, faith is to prayer what the feather is to the arrow. Without it, prayer will always miss the mark. So Christians are called to live by faith. The entire life lived by faith. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, which he's talking about in this body, is a life of faith. Or he says, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So faith is what fuels our lives as followers of Christ. And remember, real faith endures. It perseveres. It makes it all the way to the end. It doesn't peter out halfway through. It doesn't make it halfway through life. It makes it all the way to the end with 
Christ. And that was the point of the last verse of chapter 10 when when the, the writer says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. He's talking about shrinking back in our faith. We are not of those that shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So true living faith takes us all the way. And of course, the reason Hebrews 11 was written, it was to encourage beleaguered Christians, those who were suffering, those who were enduring hardship, it was to encourage them to not drift back, to not shrink back, but to keep going. And it gives them example after example after example of the faithful who walked with God when life was hard. Even though we exercise faith and are called to live a life of faith, it's always important to remember that faith, true faith, is a divine gift. Something God gives. It's not something that originates in you. It's not something that you have to kind of work really hard to bring up from deep down. It's something that comes down from above. Something that God gives. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So the the salvation, which is by grace through faith, all of it is a gift. So uh, faith is a divine gift from God. And therefore, true faith will endure to the end and preserve the soul because it comes from God and it's powerful. It's not mainly something that we work up. Of course, we we, we seek God and we are called to cultivate the gift of faith that he's given us. He's given us means like his word and prayer and fellowship and worship. All these things are given to us to help strengthen our faith, but it comes from God. So a true faith will, will, will endure to the end. A false faith, however, will not endure. False faith will prove phony in the end. It won't endure to the end. So we want to have the faith that God gives and not something that we can produce on our, on our own. Well, last week we, were, we looked at the first three verses and we looked at, in the first three verses, we looked at the definition of faith, the approval of faith, and the activity of faith. I just want to do a quick, uh, um, remind us quickly about what we talked about last week. Verse one tells us about the definition of faith. It tells us that faith is the God-given ability to trust the future he has promised to us and also to trust the invisible realities he's revealed in his word. So the future he's promised to us, of course, is things like heaven and the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and eternal life. And this kind of faith is powerful. It, 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 it strengthens people to live bold, courageous lives for God. A few weeks ago, I told about this young woman in the third century. Her name was Blatinda, I believe, Blandina, one of those two. I can't remember for sure. And she was this young woman living, living in the Roman Empire under intense persecution and how she lived so courageously and suffered, onlookers said, more than anyone they'd ever seen. And she did it with joy. And it's because she had the hope of the resurrection. She had faith in what was before her in the future. So this, that's the faith that we're looking for. That's the faith that's described here in Hebrews 11, verse 1. 
Of course, the unseen realities, it's the evidence of things not seen or the conviction of things not seen. The invisible realities he's revealed would be the promises of God that we can't see with our physical eyes, but we trust them. Or it would be like the invisible Christ who's with us, the presence of the Lord Jesus who said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will be with you always to the end of the age. He's with us. He's with us now. He's with us here. He's present now with us. We can't see him with our physical eyes, but he's here. Faith is the conviction of things like that. Verse 2, last week, we looked at the approval of faith. Faith receives the approval of God. And we, we, we're going to look more, about this, more at this today. But the point is that the way we please God is by trusting him, by taking him at his word. The old song that says, oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. That pleases God. That kind of simple, childlike faith that just says, God has said, I trust him. And finally, last week we looked at the activity of faith by which the past saints lived lives of incredible faithfulness to God through great adversity. Sometimes they experienced what can only be described as obvious victories. They subdued kingdoms, they shut the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, and so forth, and they did it by faith. And other times they experienced what could only be described as apparent defeat. They were chased, they were hunted down, they hid in caves, they were sawn in two, and all of these things they did by faith. Now today I want to look at why faith pleases God, and it has to do with the object of our faith. The object of our faith. What is it that we have faith in? Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, when talking about prayer, he says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. And then he says, and say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea. But first he says, have faith in God. The object of our faith is God. He must be the object of our faith. We must have our faith fixed on him. This is so important because I think we often have misplaced objects we trust in. And we can do this in, in a very, very um, spiritual way as well. For instance, some put their faith in their faith. Their faith isn't in God, it's in their faith. There's this woman that I've known for years, dear woman, she was very, very good friends with my parents. Um, one time I was listening to her talk about her faith and, and as she was talking about her faith, she, she, she focused on things that she was believing and confessing and attitudes she had and wanted to make sure she was positive and not negative and saying positive things and not negative things. All these things, which are good, of course. But it became clear that her faith wasn't so much as in, in God as it was in her own attitude and words and, and so forth. So we can have faith in faith rather than in God. 
Others can have faith, put, put their faith in their felt needs. What they really believe with all their heart is the things that they need God to do for them. And so they approach God with that at the forefront. These, this mountain of stuff, I need you to come through for me on God. Others can generally have their faith aimed in the right direction, but it's kind of vague and it's kind of vague faith in God without any particulars. They might throw out things like God is good, but there's not really any definition of that. So their faith is vague, it's not defined, and because it's vague and not defined, it's thin and not very deep. Listen to what John Piper said about faith. He said, the nature of faith and the vitality of faith is rooted in what God is like and not what we are like. You don't find out what Christian faith is by, con- by consulting your felt needs. You find out what Christian faith is by consulting the nature of God. Therefore, if you would have your faith strong and your soul strong and your family strong and your church strong, know your God. Know your God. Your faith will be strong and powerful insofar as the object of your faith is strong and powerful. So we're going to take a look at verses 4 to 6 here this morning. And I want to look at two men in verses 4 and 5, Abel and Enoch. And they had faith, this kind of faith that pleased God. And then I want to look at verse 6, which tells us why we can't please God without faith. And it's very important we understand the reason given to us. So verse 4 says Abel lived by faith. Here's what it says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still lives. I love that last phrase, by the way. (laughs) Through his faith, though he's dead... He still lives. Wow. Abel and Cain, they were brothers. They both brought offerings to God. The difference is that Cain brought his offering in faith and, excuse me, Abel brought his offering in faith faith and Cain did not. And Abel was commended as having pleased God and it says through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You want that kind of faith, don't you? The kind of faith that when you're dead still allows you to speak to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, or you're not going to have great-grandchildren, then others that you will impact. I want to have that kind of faith as well. Verse 5 tells us about Enoch. Here's what it says about Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now Enoch is kind of a mysterious figure in the Bible. There's three verses in all the Bible that give a biography of Enoch. And he shows up here in the hall of faith. Doesn't say much about Enoch. But apparently he had the kind of faith that pleased God and that's being commended to us. Enoch is one of two people in all the Bible that didn't die physically. Verse five says, God, by faith, he was, 
Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was just taken to heaven. Didn't die physically. The other guy was Elijah. But prior to being taken up, he pleased God. I want to read from Genesis chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. This tells us about Enoch. Listen, listen if you can hear what it was about Enoch that pleased God. He walked by faith, but how does Genesis 5 describe him? Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There's this amazing phrase that's repeated twice about Enoch. Enoch walked with God. What a thing to be said about you. I mean, if there's one thing that could, that could be said about you by your friends when you're gone, or your children, or your nieces and nephews, or your neighbor, or people in the church here, your friends, wouldn't it be amazing if the thing that's said about you is, he walked with God. She walked with God. As the world was getting worse and worse, leading up to the judgment of the flood, this is Genesis 5, remember Genesis 6 through 8 is God's talking to Noah and telling him to build an ark and then the sending of the flood. As the, the world was getting worse and worse, leading up to this judgment of the flood, it says Enoch walked with God. That's pretty awesome. Well, both of these men, Abel and Enoch, had faith that pleased God. After telling of the faith of these two men, the author says, verse six, we've already talked about this, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. These two men please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. These two men had faith, the kind that pleases God. The true faith that comes from God is a gift from God that endures to the end. It pleases God. These men had it. Without faith, it is impossible. You and I are powerless, utterly impotent, without ability to please God, without faith. Now the question is, why? Why can't we please God without faith? And we have to see the reason that's given to us. We don't want to jump somewhere else and come up with our own ideas about why we can't please God without faith. We have to see the reason that the Holy Spirit gives to us because he gives it right here. The second part of verse six gives us the reason we cannot please God. Can I just do a little sidebar here for a second? Well, I got the mic, so I guess I'm going to anyways. All right, so about 10 years ago, maybe, maybe, long, maybe 12 years ago, I got this little book, and the book was um, a really helpful book for me that helped me understand how to study the Bible. It's not complicated at all. It's not hard at all. The main thing that it does is it te- taught me and it teaches those who would, would study the scripture this way that the Bible makes arguments. It, it, makes, it draws conclusions based on things that are previously said and, and it draws conclusions based on things that are about to be said. In other words, the Bible is not a bunch of individual pearls, but it's like a link of chains, 
one leading to the next, leading to the next, leading to the next. I found that so helpful in studying the Bible. And I find that so helpful here. Here's what it says. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? It tells us. Because he who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Why is it impossible to please God? Because if we're going to draw near to God, we need to believe two fundamental things about him. Two fundamental things we have to believe about him. First, that he exists, or more literally, that he is. And second, that he rewards those who seek him. Or some of the older translations um, say that he is the rewarder. That he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And so I just want to take some time to think about this. What does it mean to believe that God is? And what does it mean to approach him believing that he rewards? This is how we please God. This is how faith pleases God. It's believing these things, that God is and that he rewards. So first, we must believe that God exists or that he is. It's not believing that God exists like I believe that chair exists. It's not like that. Kind of a strange phrase that we must believe that he is. It's a strange phrase, but it's very important. And what I would suggest is it helps get rid of our tendency to have a small God mentality. There's this book that was written some time ago, I think in the 70s or something, maybe 80s written by a guy named J.B. Phillips, and the title of the book, I've not read the book, I don't know if it's any good, but I like the title. (laughs) And uh, the title is, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. Well, the God of the Bible is not. But sometimes we need to come face to face with the majesty of God to kind of blow away our tendency to have a God that we can kind of bring down to our size a little bit, that we can kind of handle, um, that we're a little more comfortable with. What does it mean that God is? Well, it means that he exists absolutely. It means he never came into being. He has always existed and he always will. Think about this. He is never becoming. He is never growing. He is never changing. He is. He was and is and is to come. He is the God who exists absolutely. He is ultimate reality. I can't help but think that the author, as he's writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit, that he isn't thinking about God's conversation with Moses in the Midianite wilderness. Where Moses was out shepherding a flock and, and he sees this bush that's burning and he turns aside because the bush is burning but it's not being consumed and, and God talks him out of the bush and fast forward a little bit. God says, you're gonna go and you're gonna set my people free from Egypt and you're gonna go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? Remember how God answered him? Tell him, I am sent you. 
Tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am, God said. That is my name. I am that I am. God is ultimate reality. And thankfully, he has not hidden himself from us, but he has revealed himself, certainly in his word and in creation, but through his word and in the coming of Christ in particular. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of the God who is. And when we read read through the Gospel of John, you see Jesus referring to himself in this way throughout the, the book of John and all the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life and so forth. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of who God is, of who God always has been, and of who God always will be. I love Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, which describes the eternal Son of God who is. So I want to just look at this briefly. Let me read these verses, and then I just want to draw out a few things that this means for us, that God is, that he is, that he exists absolutely, and that he's revealed himself in Christ. Listen to Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or have first place. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the God who is. He's Jesus Christ, the eternal son. Let's think about what this reveals of the eternal God, the Lord Jesus Christ. First, that he is the creator of everything. When you approach God, do you think of him as the powerful creator of everything? Everything exists from him. Verse 16, and and he wants to make it just abundantly clear. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Okay, that's like everywhere, all right? And uh, visible and invisible, so like the things you can see and the things you can't see. And then whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Jesus Christ, the God who is. He does not derive his existence from anything else He is. You and I, on the other hand, we derive our existence from him. And everything else that's ever been created derives its existence from Jesus Christ. We must believe this. We must believe this. This is what pleases him, that he is creator. But it goes on to say, not only is Jesus the creator of everything, he's also the sustainer of everything. Everything exists not only from him, but through him. 
Verse 17 says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What things? All things. Including you? Yep. Including you. Right now? Absolutely. Right now. You are being held together by the Lord Jesus Christ. Your next breath is from him. You are alive at this moment because of him. First opening words of of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one says, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the entire universe the cosmos, with all of its galaxies and the trillions and trillions of stars and all of that and you and I. He upholds it all by the word of his power. Christ must not be relegated to the margins of our lives if we are calling ourselves Christians. We must believe now if we would please him, if we would have a faith that pleases him, we must believe that he is sustainer, upholding the universe, holding all things together, holding us together at this moment. But this passage reveals something else about Jesus. It also reveals that he is the end and goal of everything. All things come from him. All things are sustained through him or he holds all things together but also everything that exists, exists for him. For him. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. You and I and everything else in all of human history were created and exist for the glory of Christ. For his glory. Think about that. You exist for him. Like if most, the most basic answer to the question, why am I here? Why am I alive? It's for him. What is your destiny in life? It's to glorify him in faith and obedience. You exist for him. We must believe that Christ is the end and goal of everything. And finally, I mean, we could go on and on and on to say that God is, we could just talk about this forever. But let me just draw one more thing out of Colossians 1. Christ is our loving Savior. He's creator, sustainer, the end and goal of everything. He's also our loving Savior. Verse 20 says that he makes peace by the blood of his cross. You know, if it had just talked about Jesus being the creator and sustainer and the end and goal of everything, we might be left thinking, okay, he's powerful, (laughs) he's majestic and big and strong, but perhaps not a loving and gracious savior. But in Christ, of course, we know that he is. The creator, sustainer, the one for whom all things exist came to die for rebel sinners on a rugged cross in order to make peace by the blood of the cross. And we must believe that he is creator, sustainer, end and goal of everything and our loving savior. Amen? To please God, you must draw near to him, believing that he is.
He's pleased with this. He's pleased with this. This pleases God. A couple weeks ago, maybe it was last week, I was telling about how my, my son, he, well, lots of times, not every time, all, all the time, but he likes to please his dad when we're playing football. <laughs> he does. He likes to hear the approbation, the approval of his dad. Every blood-bought child of God loves to please their father. This pleases him when we come to God believing that he is. The final component we must believe is that God is the rewarder of those who seek him. He rewards seekers. I'm gonna come back to that, but I want you to think about that. He rewards those who seek him. Those who seek him. He is the rewarder of seekers. Again, verse six says, and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is or that he exists or that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. You cannot please God without coming to him as a rewarder. I'm gonna say that again. You cannot please God without coming to him with your hands open to receive from him. He's the rewarder of those who Seek him. He is generous. John Piper commenting on this verse says, behind the assertion that God is rewarding is the fact that he is so full and so completely self-sufficient that he overflows. Rather than needing our service, he doesn't need anything from us. Rather than needing our service, he is like a never-ending spring of life and energy, and joy, and beauty, and goodness, and power. The kinds of things you and I need are really bad, right? We need joy, we need energy, we need his strength, we need his goodness. He rewards those who seek him. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. See, I think it, it's, it's a grave sin to approach God as though he's stingy. It's a sin. It's not just we need to change our thinking. We do need to change our thinking, but we also need to be convicted. That is sinful. It pleases him when we come to him as a God who is rich and overflowing and generous and eager to give to his children, what they need. Jesus speaks of the great generosity of the Father when he said in Luke 11, if you then, speaking of earthly parents, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Or in Matthew, it, says, it just kind of says, it says a little differently. It says, how much more will he give good things to those who ask him? 
Now, we might think that the greater the gift, the more reluctant God is to give it. But here it says, how much more? God wants us to know him as a God who is rich and overflowing with generosity and so willing to give us the things that we need. Now, of course, hopefully we know this, not, not every selfish desire we want, but all the things that we need. Have you not seen all that is needful has been graciously ordained by God. We sang about that earlier. It's been graciously ordained that God would give us all that we need. Again, Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 32 says, fear not, little flock. I mean, the tenderness of Christ. Fear not, little flock, it, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen. He is not tight-fisted. He is not tight-fisted. God is not tight-fisted with his children. He gives them what is best for them, what is good for them, but he is so rich and generous to give what is best, to give what is good. And so we are to draw near to him like that. I mean, this phrase over and over again in the book of Hebrews, draw near, let us draw near. In what way? Believing that he is and believing that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Back in Hebrews chapter seven, it says, because Christ is this glorious high priest, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. God is generous. He is a rewarder. But it's important to see that this is a wonderful promise for a particular people. Who does he reward? Those who seek him. Those who seek. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. To whoever asks, he receives. And whoever seeks, he will find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. That's the context in which Jesus says, if you as an evil, evil parent know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good? It's those who seek God. It's wonderful, wonderful promise in Jeremiah 29. In that day, Jeremiah says, or God says through Jeremiah, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. Let me ask you a question. Those who seek God and receive the reward of God, what is the main reward that seekers get? More of God himself. It's more of God himself, which is what our hearts truly long for. There's this guy a long time ago, his name was Augustine. Well, you've heard me mention him before. He was alive in the fourth century, and he wrote this book called Confessions. It's basically a prayer to God, but it's kind of a confession of his life as well. And in it, toward the beginning of the book, he says, um, we were made for you, God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We were made for God. We, we're just coming full circle here. We were made for God. 
our hearts long for him. Right? And we run from one thing to another, restless. We go from, right, we, we lust after this and we find that doesn't satisfy whether maybe money or something. We go to, we lust after power and that doesn't satisfy. We go for sex. We go, we go from one thing to another with this heart that is restless because we're made for God. God rewards those who seek him with what is most satisfying, and that is himself. Of course, he gives us many other things with him, but he gives us himself first and foremost, and that is infinitely satisfying. He is infinitely satisfying. So draw near to him. Seek him. Would you describe yourself as a seeker of God? Not generally a spiritual person, but as a seeker of God. Seek him. Draw near to him and do it with open hands so that you can receive from him. Draw near to him, seeking him, the God who is. Not a God of your own imagination, the God who actually is. Draw near to him, seek him with open hands. He will pour himself out upon you so richly and he will give you all that you need. Romans 8.32. This might be my favorite verse in all the Bible. I just love this verse. I think I've quoted it a few times in the last few months too. So you probably have heard this from me. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Do you hear the rich generosity of a rewarding God? He he gave us his son. He could give us nothing better. He gave us his son. He will not withhold any good thing from us. I just would add, in due time, Maybe not all at once, but in due time, he will give us every good thing that we need. He is gracious and glorious. Of course, the ultimate reward will be when we see him face to face. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you.